Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 62, Troubled Waters, The Early Blockade. On April 27, 1861, in the very first days following the bombardment of Fort Sumter, President Lincoln proclaimed a blockade over the ports of the Confederacy, as well as the states of North Carolina and Virginia, given that they had seemingly turned traitor. Now, in a previous episode, it occurred that I failed to explain what a blockade is formally, and what it meant in legal terms in those days. And both of those factors obviously matter, but particularly in the context of a civil war. First, a blockade is the military investment of a port, generally by ships offshore, which interdict peaceful commerce or traffic under threat of violence. And that is important, because the purpose of a blockade is economic, not primarily military. Now yes, blockading ships absolutely will attack any enemy military vessels they can fire upon. But the point specifically is to stop trade through civilian vessels, seizing their money and goods or even the ship itself, and potentially killing the crews. But why, after all, does that matter? Why did Abraham Lincoln write a formal order and communicate it to European countries? Now, obviously, the Union Navy could and would attack any Confederate ships they encountered, right? Well, yes, but the point of declaring blockades is a matter of diplomacy, not war. Blockades allow one nation to attack the ships of neutral nations. If a British or French merchant dared to approach Charleston Harbor, a Union Navy ship could and would attack it. And under international law and custom, the Americans would take no blame for it. They would not owe Britain or France as countries. They would not owe the cargo owner or the crew any compensation. Indeed, under international law, the ship was vulnerable to attack the moment they left port with intent to dock at Charleston. Generally speaking, foreign nations not otherwise involved in a given conflict would prefer to keep trading at their own convenience, but they'd also prefer not to get their people shot about it. Hence, making a blockade involved a public demonstration of military power, an open warning not to get involved. This brings up the issue of belligerent and neutral states. Belligerents are the states involved in active fighting, including military allies, while neutrals are those staying out of it. When Abraham Lincoln declared a blockade, he somewhat unintentionally walked into a small dispute created by European legal developments and precedent. Over the centuries, European states had worked their way towards a formal interpretation of the uh, blockading as described above. Now, in part, this was aided by the fact that so many of Europe's capitals and great cities lay in reasonably close proximity, which made international conferences, communication, and even debate more practical. Besides, through commonly spoken languages such as French, but also Latin and Greek among scholars, thinkers and statesmen of Europe could easily communicate. Moreover, because there was no single military hegemon, there was a need to communicate. Now, through laws, understood and informal practices, treaties, and even legal cases, Europeans had built up the formal idea of blockading. Now, in all of that, the idea of a blockade implicitly included the notion that states created and enforced blockades against foreign nations, not domestic ones. In proclaiming a blockade, instead of closing the ports by executive order, Lincoln seemed to treat the Confederacy as a real existing state. And if it were so, then presumably he could not complain if European powers recognized the Confederacy. 
But as they say, in theory, theory is the same as practice, and in practice, it isn't. There were several significant factors affecting this. First off, Lincoln was actually a pretty good lawyer, but one area that he wasn't an expert in was international law. Now second, the United States had not signed on to the Treaty of Paris, which formally defined some of the new European standards for blockades. But most importantly, the Lincoln administration, in practice, understood that the war had a dual character, as both a domestic insurrection, but also a war against the de facto Confederate state. Because the Confederacy's origin lay in, effectively, an internal coup, well, that allowed it to assemble the formal institutions of a state immediately. While the Lincoln administration would never recognize the Confederacy, it did, in effect, allow low-level diplomacy. Lincoln would often treat the Confederacy as being a legitimate state in order to avoid bloodshed, where it was not necessary. In any case, once Lincoln declared a blockade, European powers, most significantly Britain and France, duly declared themselves neutrals. This immediately irritated Secretary of State William Seward, who hoped they would entirely refuse to even entertain the idea of the existence of the Confederacy. That was realistically too much to ask. European powers could hardly afford to pretend that nothing was happening over in the Americas, no matter how much Seward really wished they would. So it would have to be a blockade, and on a scale rarely seen in history. The Confederacy held the coastline from Virginia to Texas, over 3,000 miles, including a dozen major ports, plus many smaller ones. Quite a few of these ports, too, had the advantage of barrier islands or bayous, which created multiple points of entry. As we've seen, the Confederacy immediately took possession of nearly all the old American fortresses guarding them. These fortifications alone couldn't stand forever, nor were they ever intended to. The forts were tough, but not invulnerable. A sufficient naval detachment could destroy them, as happened with the makeshift defenses at Hatteras Inlet and Pamlico Sound. But against powerful, purpose-built forts armed properly, well, that could require unacceptably large naval forces and horrible casualties. Or at least, that's what the commonly accepted wisdom said. The U.S. Navy intended to rewrite that story, and indeed, before the war concluded, would do so. But just getting to that point required a grand blockade, and it had to be effective enough to ward off all but the most daring of merchants. If not, the Confederacy could declare it a paper blockade, and the governments of Europe might well listen. At any rate, the Confederacy would undoubtedly try, and whether or not they succeeded would depend on one fact. Could the Union threaten each of the Confederate ports, and quickly? This task alone would push the Navy to its limit, and yet they succeeded admirably. By the fall of 1861, every one of the Confederacy's major ports had a blockade established, although somewhat loose at first. The task was aided, however, not only by the fact that the vast majority of the ship's sailors and officers available to swell the ranks lived in northern ports, but also that the Confederacy could barely put any naval vessels into the water at all. Those it had were limited to tiny coastal vessels, often mounting just one old cannon bolted to the hull. And yet the experience of Hatteras, and to a lesser degree Pamlico Sound, showed that the Union Navy would also need to develop its own shallow water resources. Frigates designed for full-scale battles at sea certainly delivered the firepower needed, but they could not safely venture too close to the coastline. In particular, much of the coast from southern Virginia to South Carolina lay protected by those barrier islands, and behind those, 
sandbars cut across a generally shallow underwater landscape. And that was just the East Coast. The Gulf had its own set of problems, most notably the distance from northern ports. Beyond the logistical difficulty, however, the Navy also needed to find weaknesses in two specific locations, New Orleans and Mobile Bay. Both presented great difficulties. New Orleans specifically, however, had the unusual geography whereby ships had to travel up a long, narrow channel protected by two strong forts to reach the city. However, this also partly aided the blockade, in that they could easily halt ships at the mouth of this channel. This was a great problem for the Confederacy. A huge proportion of its pre-war commerce went through New Orleans. Mobile Bay would also give the Union the most trouble in the end, although in some respects this was a self-inflicted wound. Because the Navy assigned it a low priority compared to most other ports, they did not invest and close it off until 1864. By that time, the Confederates had built up their defenses considerably. In addition, while the bay itself is large, it opens to a relatively narrow channel of a size effective to ward off Union attack. That said, Mobile had a lower strategic priority for a reason. Compared to other Confederate ports, it had an awkward and incomplete transportation system. The rivers and railroads connecting into it mattered less for internal shipping. Texas, distant from nearly all the fighting in the war, boasted a couple smaller ports, most notably Corpus Christi. It did, however, also include the town of Brownsville, across the river from Matamoros, Mexico. Merchants could, and did, import war material right over from Mexico, simply crossing the river with it. Ships could sail directly to Matamoros and then simply sell their cargoes on the other bank. And the Union could not formally blockade the Rio Grande entirely because it was partially under Mexican authority. That said, the importance of Matamoros and Brownsville can easily be overestimated. The two cities weren't served by rail, and thus any goods shipped there had to be moved at considerable cost far inland. But the trade still irked the Navy. Worse yet, when they did capture suspicious ships, the prize courts often determined that the Navy had to pay restitution. To finally resolve this, the Navy developed an extension of the doctrine of continuous voyage, and it became one of the most critical tools in their arsenal. So this brings us to a topic. What is continuous voyage? Why is it important? Why is it ironic that Americans employed it for blockading? And what did they finally do with it in Brownsville? In essence, continuous voyage is a legal hammer that navies like to bring down on the hands of people who think they're being clever. Back in the days of Napoleon, for example, Americans would try to ship goods from French ports to other French ports by docking at an American port in the between. In theory, this allowed them to partly evade the British blockade. But not surprisingly, the British Navy disagreed and seized the ships anyhow. They declared, among other things, that there was really one continuous voyage in such cases, regardless of the ports the ship stopped at. This resulted in a lot of unhappy people, who formerly owned ships and cargo, and now had none. This principle also saw a great deal of use during the Civil War, but now it was the Union Navy enforcing it. British, French, and Spanish merchants, among others, would ship goods to the Caribbean or cotton out of the Confederacy, with the full intent of running through the blockade lines. The ports, mainly Nassau, but sometimes Bermuda or even Spanish Havana, generally did not import huge quantities of arms or other goods or cotton bales. Therefore, merchants had a very difficult time explaining why they suddenly and unaccountably decided to ship a few thousand modern rifles. 
As you may guess, this resulted in a lot of unhappy people who formerly owned ships and cargo and now had none. Now to be clear, the Union Navy actively patrolled those waters and seized any suspicious-looking vessels. If the ship's captains could not produce appropriate documentation, or if they had those suspect goods on board, well, then it was off to the prize court for them. In the specific case of Matamoros and Brownsville, however, the Navy tired of the Confederates thumbing their noses at proud American warships and extended the doctrine of continuous voyage. Previously, the rule had been limited purely to naval shipments. But the Navy now argued that the idea should be extended to cover re-export across land borders as well. This resulted in a lot of unhappy people who formerly owned ships and cargo and now had none. Interestingly, this also furthered British aims, which is largely why the British government did not dispute the notion. Specifically, as an island nation with a huge fleet, the rule actually gave more weight to their blockades. Now, for example, had Britain, say, enforced a blockade against France, it might have been possible to dock at a neutral but nearby Spanish port to sell the goods, as long as they were sent across the land border then. But with the Americans creating a new precedent, those shipments could also be seized. So in the end, the British government allowed it, and thereby implicitly confirmed the rule, and they didn't forget it. Indeed, two generations after the Civil War, the British government used that same rule against several American firms selling cargoes of military goods in neutral Belgium, which were obviously intended to go over to Imperial Germany. This resulted in a lot of unhappy people who formerly owned ships and cargo and now had none. Still, though, Matamoros and Brownsville were mere pinpricks on the margins of war and blockading. Nassau, though, Nassau became the center of the blockade runners. The sleepy port of British Bahamas boomed like never before under wartime conditions. It became essentially a home away from home for blockade runners, and also the site of nonstop revelry. The efforts of the Union Navy notwithstanding, merchants still flooded the island with as many military goods as possible. More specifically, blockade runners would rest there after slipping through the Union cordon. Nassau had too many advantages to give up, as a British town in a reasonable proximity to the Confederate East Coast. The two most important ports there were Savannah and Charleston, both of which were quite close by. Nassau was out of the direct route between the United States and Europe, but it was conveniently sited for Gulf Coast traffic as well. And plus, many of the blockade runners had sailed those waters before and knew them very well. Blockade running, as the name implies, is the practice of trying to sneak through blockade lines. Running the blockade can involve considerable danger, and often quite a bit of cunning. For example, blockade runners will attempt to uh, cut through back channels, shallow channels where deep draft warships can't chase. Or, alternatively, they would employ all possible speed to rush past patrolling sentries. But the first choice of any blockade runner is stealth. By approaching under cover of darkness with all the safety lights extinguished, the blockade runner attempts to enter a port entirely unnoticed. Now, in the Civil War, blockade runners used all three of those tricks by turns. Blockade runners generally did not bother with armaments of their own, as there was no point. They could never hope to fight off even the most slapdash warship. Any weapons they carried were purely for sale. But they would paint their hulls dark, built in surprisingly powerful engines, and time their voyages to enter harbor under cover of moonless nights. And most of them did get through, probably 80% in the first year of fighting, 
but those odds slowly worsened for them throughout the war. By the end of the conflict, only about half made it through. Those odds might not sound too bad, but that doesn't tell the full story either. Every year of the blockade, well, the runners included fewer and fewer ships going to fewer ports and carrying less cargo per voyage. Every time a blockade runner got caught, it removed one Confederate asset and potentially gave the Union Navy another ship to play with. The blockade runners would have to go get another one and pay for more cargo. In total, something like 1,400 or more vessels got caught, and the Confederate documents record 3,000 known attempts to run the blockade. Indeed, the only reason the blockade running made any kind of economic sense was because the Confederacy badly needed supplies and would pay for them through the nose in gold. Prices increased so rapidly that it incentivized extreme risk-taking. And many blockade runners assumed that they would lose one or two ships out of three, but that was all right. As long as the third one made it through, that would pay for all, and the necessary profits beside. Crucial to making this work, the blockade runners were mostly British, not Americans, although some adventurous Confederates got into the business. Quite a few of them were even officers of Her Majesty's Army or Navy, who took leave to have a little fun and make all the money they could in the process. British subjects had a significant advantage in this game. When caught, and sooner or later most would be, the Americans just let them go. This may sound bizarre, but those are the rules of blockading. The British government remained neutral and shrugged at losing private ships and cargo, but would not accept the imprisonment of the crew. That said, the blockade runners would often take aboard southern pilots to get through the close confines of the harbors, and those might not get free so easily. The ships and cargo, however, also somewhat limited the influence and economic importance of the blockade runners. While at first they just used any old ship at hand, by 1862 blockade runners began to build special purpose-built vessels instead of ordinary merchantmen. These specialty blockade-running ships would have been useless in most other capacities. They traded too much cargo space for other considerations. For example, the ships often had low gunwales, that is to say, uh, the hulls weren't built very high. This made them stealthier. They often dropped the use of tall masts, since those made them easier to spot. So instead, they preferred coal-burning engines suitable only for short journeys. But of course, these took up more of the cargo room. It worked because in nautical terms, it's not a long distance from the Bahamas to the Confederate ports, and the ships were pretty seaworthy for that distance. But these design trade-offs made the ships inefficient for other purposes. They were fast and stealthy, but only the extremely high profits under work time conditions made them worthwhile. Of course, the blockade runners would stuff their holes to the brim and then line the decks with more goods, adding to the benefits. And the cotton that they brought out was just about the only thing the Confederacy had that anyone wanted. That said, in the process, they frequently dumped part of their cargo. If ever spotted by a Union vessel, their only options were surrender and flight. Unsurprisingly, they usually chose to run, and if necessary, they'd just throw some of the cargo overboard in the hopes of lightening the load. That ate into their profits, but better a partial loss than a total failure. Ironically, blockade runners actually made good blockading ships once the Union captured them. With a few cannon on board instead of cargo, the former blockade runners retained their speed, and they were just as difficult to spot for other blockade runners. In addition, because they were shallow draft vessels, they could often approach much closer to land and provide an additional line of patrolling. 
Now, whenever any of these ships spotted a new blockade runner, they'd fire up a chemical rocket. These would flare up and illuminate the fleeing ship, and every blockader in range would then chase it down or try to put a shell on the target. Having multiple layers of the blockade became a key element in the Federal effort. While the first ships often didn't arrive on station until six weeks after Lincoln declared a blockade, eventually they did establish a tight cordon. Now generally at first this was only a single line, and easily passed at night. In the first few months of the blockade, the Union Navy simply didn't have enough ships. But as the weeks passed, more vessels joined, and the Navy gained more repair and coaling stations, and so more and more ships stayed on task for longer and longer periods. Soon enough, the Navy would have, well, more than they needed, keeping an average of over 150 vessels stationed at all times. To make that cordon as difficult to slip as possible, they established several lines of defense. The main line would patrol offshore, in water suitable for the deeper draft ocean-going warships. Smaller gunboats would patrol closer to shore. As a practical and safety precaution, the ships had to maintain their warning lights so as not to crash into one another. But they could use searchlights, chemical torches, so that sharper-eyed sailors could scan the waters nearby. Now that still wasn't always enough, but as mentioned, Union ships also sailed the waters near the main neutral ports used by blockade runners. And at times they also watched the major sea lanes from Europe. If any suspicious-looking ship appeared holding a cargo of cotton, well, that too could be seized. And yet, in the main, blockade duty was dull and of little interest. Crews could indeed come alive if they spotted a runner. But quite often, very little happened for weeks on end. The blockade runners frequently waited for their best opportunities in cloudy weather and dark nights. There was generally little activity in daytime, and so the Navy men boiled in the summer sun and then endured the ocean chill in winter. On most days, they just stared out at an empty sea that might have a blockade-running ship in it, but probably didn't. In other words, it was a tedious duty that often amounted to little. As one sailor put it when tired of his weary routine, you could get the idea of blockade duty if you go to the roof on a hot summer day, talk to a half-dozen degenerates, descend to the basement, drink tepid water full of iron rust, climb to the roof again, and repeat the process at intervals. The blockade runners, for their part, had a different story to tell. As one adventurous British captain remarked, Nothing I have ever experienced can compare to it. Hunting, pig-sticking, steeple-chasing, big-game hunting, polo, I've done a little of each. All have their thrilling moments. None can approach running a blockade. Faced with enthusiasm like that, the Union Navy had no intention of playing defense alone. This was the role that General Scott's Anaconda plan assigned the Navy, but they quickly decided it would be much easier to simply capture a few of the Confederate ports. Doing so would eliminate those locations for the blockade runners, and allow the Navy to concentrate its strength in the remaining ports. And yet, those powerful fortifications glowered threateningly. Would the Navy ever be able to put together the fleets required to battle them? And could they find sailors bold enough to do so? As it turns out, the answer to both of those questions was emphatically yes. Before long, in fact, the Navy would take a swipe at both near and far ends of the Confederate coast, aiming at North Carolina and New Orleans in a dramatic reversal. The Navy intended to retake the coastline, and it had already grown very tired of Confederate vessels hugging the coast and evading them. The fight against the blockade runners had only just begun.
and yet, in one sense, it had already succeeded in 1861. Confederate commissioners in Great Britain tried vainly to argue that the Union had imposed a mere paper blockade, not worthy of respect. And yet, from London, British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston could see the situation as well as anyone, because of course he had regular intelligence from Nassau. In a key, if unofficial, meeting, the southern delegates acknowledged that the blockade created evident danger. So once again, Confederate diplomacy failed and the blockade stayed intact. Besides, Palmerston could also see that, well, the Confederates were going out of their way to acquire those purpose-built blockade runners, some financed by the firm of Fraser Tranholm. Although based in London, the company was run by slaveholding Americans, and they eagerly financed blockade running. And yet if that was necessary to get any cotton out from the Confederate ports, well, then obviously the blockade must be valid. So too, the British government would not wish to weaken the precedent of blockades, knowing that they might need to employ one in the future. In the end, the Navy blockade represented a feat of endurance and efficiency, not fury and strength. It depended on patience and hard work, and its benefits were only realized slowly. Indeed, the chief beneficiaries would never realize how much they depended on the Navy's tireless duty. Union soldiers a thousand miles or more from the coast went into battle from Confederate foes already worn down by hunger, wearing tattered clothing and often shoeless fighting with fewer and worse weapons. Those soldiers might never realize this was the result of hundreds of ships engaged in a slow, grinding effort to crush the life out of the Confederate economy. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and hope you'll join us next time.